Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Just going? Okay, there you go. Um, let's just bow our heads in prayer before we start. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we're able to gather today uh, as a body uh, and be able to hear your word. Uh, thank you for your word that we're able to uh, look at it, examine it, and apply it to our lives. I pray that you will just help me be able to do that, be able to speak clearly and discern correctly your word and be able to communicate that well, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll be examining again Philippians 1, and this time it'll be verses 18b through 26. And so if you'll recall last time, um, we spoke about uh, rejoicing in present distress. And what Paul was doing there was talking about his current circumstances, where he was and what was happening to him. And so we, we saw... What I called, uh, what I called circumstances that Paul didn't see coming, right? Unforeseen circumstances. And within those unforeseen circumstances, one thing in particular was his inability to go on missionary trips to be able to strengthen the gospel in all the nations, be able to spread the good news, as well as pastoring and shepherding those whom he has, uh, the churches that he's planted. He's he's sitting there in prison, and what's happening is he has to rent his quarters. People have to bring him food. People have to come and help him basically know what's going on around him, what's happening in Philippi, what's happening in Corinth, what's happening in all these different places. And he's being persecuted for the fact that he was spreading the gospel. And so he's sitting there on trial waiting for his appeal to Caesar. And he even has people who are supposed to be Christians preaching the gospel in envy. They're going about preaching Jesus, but they're doing it because they want their names to be magnified rather than Jesus to be magnified, and they're doing it in spite of, uh, to spite Paul, essentially. So that was the point of the last sermon. This sermon is going to take a look at the future. Paul does this interesting thing where at the end of verse 18, if you look at it, Paul says, in this I rejoice. And then at the end of it, he says, and I will rejoice. And there's this present tense that he uses for the word rejoice, and then a future tense that he uses. I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. There's a future orientation that we'll see carrying through till verse the end of verse 26. Paul is awaiting trial, and so that is his immediate circumstance that he's looking at. That's his immediate future, right? And this is looming in his mind, and so he's thinking, will I be executed or will I be exonerated? And so with that in mind, let's read the text, starting with 18b. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain on, remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the flesh, so that your proud confidence in me may be may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. 
I think one way to look at the overarching theme of the text is to see Paul's confidence in God. He can rejoice while looking to the future because his hope, his future hope, rested in a God who is all-powerful and all-reliable, a God that Paul knew was for him and not against him. This unwavering confidence Paul had led him to say that he will rejoice. And there's two specific reasons for his rejoicing that he says in this text. The first one is in verse 19, where he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 21 says that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These two reasons, his knowledge and his devotion are kind of two pillars that stand as in this passage, supporting Paul's confidence in his deliverance and his rejoicing. So what I'm going to do is break this text into three different subpoints. The first is Paul's knowledge. The sec- second is Paul's devotion. And then we'll look at Paul's decision last. So Paul's knowledge, he starts off with verse 19 through 20, which says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So this this text is, what I want us to see is Paul saying the same thing in two different ways. It, it's a positive way that he says it, and then a negative way that he says it, right? And so he says that he knows, right, this knowledge, that, he'll, that this will turn out for his deliverance. That's a positive way of saying it. The negative way of saying it for him is that he will not be put to shame. Those two are actually the same thing. So let's first look at what he says positively. When I first read this, the word deliverance to me came across as Paul thinking that he was going to be exonerated. He wasn't going to be executed. But that's actually not what this text is saying. We look at it carefully because what happens is Paul goes on to talk about death over and over and over in this passage. Death wasn't something he'd ruled out yet. And so what does deliverance mean in this passage? If we look at the word deliverance, it's the word soteria, which is the word we get for soteriology or salvation, the doctrine of salvation or understanding of salvation. So for Paul, the way he uses it has a wide variety of meanings. It could mean deliverance from literal death right now, deliverance from a bad circumstance physically. It can also mean deliverance from sin, deliverance from eternal wrath, It could mean many different things for Paul. So in this specific context, I think what he's talking about is deliverance from denying Jesus. It's a deliverance from being ashamed of the gospel. So that brings us to the negative way he's talking about it, right? And so he says that he would not be put to shame in anything. The deliverance means that he would not be put to shame. Those are the same things. Ultimately, what Paul is saying positively of deliverance is what he's saying negatively of not being put to shame. All of that means exalting Jesus, whether in life or in death. So Paul says in Romans 1.16, he wrote this to the church in Rome, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now he has a chance to stand before Caesar and prove that. Is he ashamed of the gospel? Will he stand before Caesar and continue to not be ashamed of the gospel, be delivered from that? And he knows that he will be delivered from it. And this is in accordance with what he calls his earnest hope and expectation, or his earnest expectation and hope. That is, that rather than being put to shame, he would be able to stand before Caesar, knowing that Caesar could kill him, and be able to proclaim Jesus in spite of 
that possibility. And he knew that he would be delivered from it. Now, he says that that knowledge causes him to rejoice, knowing that he will stand before Caesar, being able to rejoice, or being able to not be ashamed of Jesus. He's going to rejoice in that. Now, I personally don't know if, if I was in Paul's shoes, if I can say I'm going to rejoice. Right? That, that idea of being joyful in light of death is not something that I'm too keen on. But I think we have to remember that Paul is not talking about feelings because a feeling is an emotion. Paul is rooting his understanding in something else, in a confidence, in knowledge. And so if you look with me, turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. I believe what Paul is talking about here is a faith. What Hebrews 11.1 says, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about a near-death experience that he and others had in Asia. And so in this passage, Paul has a very different reaction to the idea of possible death than he does in Philippians. We'll see this completely different emotional range that he has. Starting in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we, that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Right, we have a very different attitude towards death here from Paul. He doesn't seem to have this great joy as he faced down death. In fact, he said that while he was suffering this, he had suffering and hardship. He despaired. He felt burdened excessively. And so even in the midst of this, he says that it, it's, it's not this joy that comes from an emotional high. Instead, he says that he didn't trust in himself. It wasn't his own strength. He said that he trusted in God, a God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril and will deliver us. The word deliver that is used here is a different word. It generally means something more immediate, some type of physical danger. But the idea here is similar. He knew that God had delivered him, who raises the dead and will deliver him again. He knows a God who he can trust. He knows a God who he can rely on. And so what I'm trying to point out is Paul's emotions can ebb and flow. His emotions in Philippians is emotional high. His emotions in 2 Corinthians is more of an emotional low. I can be happy one moment, and then I can be really depressed. The next, I can think about how great everything is going one moment, and then something happens, and I'm down. I'm, I'm feeling depressed. But our feelings isn't what we set our hope on. Paul says that he didn't set his hope on himself. He set his hope on God. Paul's belief and confidence in God never wavered, even if his emotions did. This reminds me of um, the men's retreat at Forest Home. I think a lot of us can think about how we go there for the weekend and we come back with a bit of an emotional high. We feel great, right? We've been around brothers for a whole weekend. We've been praying. We've been talking about his word. We've been encouraging one another. And so we come back with an emotional high, but generally with an emotional high also comes an emotional low. We'll feel this roller coaster where we see how high spiritually we were, and then now 
we're feeling a lot more disconnected because we're not with our brothers anymore. Or here's another example. One of my professors was talking about church discipline, and he says, right after somebody is excommunicated from the church, there is this sober conviction that just washes over the entire church, and everyone's thinking, I'm not going to sin like that. I'm not going to let my sins take root like that. I'm, I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to be held accountable. It's an emotional conviction that wavers over time, but the idea is the true conviction of placing our hope in Jesus, of wanting to live like Jesus, that doesn't change. My point here is that we shouldn't feel defeated if we don't have the same level of emotional conviction that Paul has here in face of uncertain futures, just that we continue to cling on to our faith and know that we have a God who we can trust, who will deliver us. And something else I want us to see here in verse 19 is that Paul's knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge. He doesn't just know that God will deliver him. In verse 19, he says, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that his conviction to stand firm wasn't his own ability. It wasn't some kind of works righteousness where he knew that he could stand there before Caesar and somehow be able to exalt Jesus because of his own strength. Instead, he relied on the Holy Spirit who would strengthen him. He relied on his brothers and sisters who would pray for him so that the Holy Spirit would come and empower him to do that. He wasn't pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. He needed the community of the saints. He needed the Spirit of God to embolden and empower him. So in applying this, we should ask ourselves, what do we need deliverance from that we are anticipating? What is causing me anxiety and fears? I look forward to the future. Is it fear of death Is it the injustice that's going on? Is it America being rocked with violence and looting? Is it the trajectory of our country? Is it poverty? Is it our financial status right now? And and then we need to ask ourselves, am I looking for deliverance from that situation? Or am I asking for deliverance from being being not ashamed? of the gospel, being not ashamed of exalting Jesus, whether or not those things happen. Can I say with Jesus, whether in life or in death, or say with Paul, whether in life or death, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether suffering injustice or seeing justice serve, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether poor or rich, Christ will be exalted in my body. That's the deliverance Paul is looking for, being able to exalt Jesus whatever circumstances actually happen. Lastly, we should ask ourselves how much we covet one another's prayers. How much do we ask for prayer when we're unable to stand strong, when we face circumstances that make us anxious? Do we reach out to our brothers and sisters and ask for prayer? Do we believe in prayer enough that we want to pray for our brothers and sisters who are seeing unforeseen circumstances, who are facing a future that is, that's causing them anxiety. We need to covet one another's prayers so that we can face down uncertain futures and be able to exalt Jesus through those circumstances, no matter what happens. Well, we turn next to Paul's devotion. We've been talking about his knowledge, this firm belief and trust that Paul has that God will help him exalt Jesus no matter the circumstance, no matter the decision that Caesar makes. And we'll turn now to Paul's deep 
conviction, which is the second source of Paul's confidence. Starting in verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. What I want us to see here is Paul's utter devotion to Jesus. Exalting Jesus is the center and core of Paul's identity and being. He's confident that whatever happened, he would be delivered as a result, because no matter what happened, he wants to see Jesus glorified. In our day and age, many people would find that type of devotion a sort of fanaticism. Why would this man want to die for the sake of religion? But for Paul, it was actually his very reason for being. And this confidence stemming from Paul's division plays out in two surprising ways. The first way is that he believes life and death is in his command, right? And so you notice here, this, this, a different way to say that is that the upcoming trial, he believed that it was his choice whether or not he was going to live or die. Right? And so if you look at verse 22, it says, I do not know which to choose, Paul keeps making these ironic claims, right? And so he's in chains, and he says that he's a slave of Jesus. He's bound to a guard, and yet the guard is bound to him because he's the one preaching the gospel so that even the praetorian guards hear about the gospel. And here, he's about to stand before Caesar, the highest office in Rome, and he's going to say, I don't know which to choose, whether I die or live. Not that Caesar gets to choose whether I die or live, And why can he do that? He can do that because he has a higher authority he can appeal to. He has the king of kings, the Caesar of Caesars, that he can appeal to. Which also meant that whatever God chose, this king of kings, whatever God chose to do would work out for the good of those who love him. Or to put it differently, Paul's choice here isn't so much about Paul believing he can choose whether he can live or die, as much as Caesar being able to choose whether Paul can live or die. The point is that God was the one in control of whether he lived or died. And what Paul is doing is he's trying to divide the will of God. He's trying to understand what is it that God wants. Does God want him to live or does God want him to die? And whichever one that is, Paul wants to appeal to God For that, he wants to pray. He's saying, in essence, living and dying both have benefits that exalt Jesus. I don't know which one to choose to pray to appeal to God for. Right? Think of it like this you're sitting at work and your boss wants to see you in 30 minutes. And you know that you've just been written up recently and budget cuts are everywhere, right? And your job is kind of tenuous, your position is non essential, right? And you're going into this office and you're going, I I probably am going to get fired. Now, with that, what Paul is saying is God is in control. I don't know which to choose, to get fired or not fired. Which do I pray for? And the point is that God is in control of that. But it's not just this passive, well, God's in control of it. I have nothing to do with it. Instead, what Paul is showing us here is an active, which one brings about God's glory the most? Which one, living or dying, losing my job or not losing it, which one will exalt Jesus the most? And that's the one I'm going to appeal to God for. 
The second thing that should surprise us in this passage is that Paul actually finds death a desirable alternative, right? He finds it a desirable alternative. But it's not like Paul has a death wish. He's not suicidal. That's not what Paul is teaching us. Instead, what Paul is saying is that he, he wants to live. He finds life a desirable alternative. Both life and death for him are desirable. But the point is that because Paul's life is wholly devoted to Jesus, to him, death is gain as well. Right? There's nothing these people can do to him, even killing him, that would affect him eternally. Paul's life is absolutely devoted to Jesus so that he can say in Romans 8, 37 to 39, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death, depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Paul basically says, bring it. Whatever you do to me, Jesus has already conquered it. He's conquered death itself. There's nothing you can do that will result in Jesus not being magnified because my entire life is about magnifying Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For Paul, he's already dead in one sense. Right? He's, he's on this journey in life now. He's a pilgrim. He's in a pilgrim's progress towards a destination. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers as sojourners, as those on a journey in a foreign land towards something. And that land that we're going towards, the land that Paul's walking towards on this journey, that we're all walking towards as Christians, is the kingdom of heaven. And so to kill Paul literally means to bring him to his destination sooner. Right? He's walking this path. If Caesar kills him, cuts his life short, guess what? Guess what? He gets to go to heaven sooner. And so to Paul, death is literally a gain. He's finished his journey. Because of that, that, death is actually a desirable path for him. And so this is counterintuitive for us, right? Do I live like that? Do I actually believe that death is gain for me? Do I cling on to life instead? Some application questions for us. In applying this, what I ask, what I would ask, I need to ask myself, what is my earnest hope and expectation When I look at my life and the future trajectory of where it's going, do I think, however my life goes, wherever my life leads, my chief end is exalting Jesus? Or instead, am I looking to something else? Am I looking towards hope of finishing my degree, of getting a job promotion, of finding uh, more pay, of being able to see my children grow up to be accomplished adults? What am I setting my hope on? What do I want to see happen? Do I want to see those things happen to exalt Jesus or for myself? With all those goals which are good, we need to keep in mind the simple truth that we don't want to make them ultimate goals. We know this. We don't want to make idols out of good things. As we live life, it's not about, I'll try to exalt Jesus as I live my life and get the things that I want. 
Instead, it's the opposite. It's I want to exalt Jesus as my life's goal, and I may or may not get those other things that are ancillary, things that God gives as gifts to us. Lastly, I want to conclude with Paul's conclusion. That is, Paul's decision. The fact that Paul believes he can choose life and death rather than it being Caesar should surprise us. The fact that Paul finds death a favorable alternative should surprise us. But a third aspect that should surprise us is that he actually finds death the favorable alternative. He says, for it is very much better. It's actually better to die. But then the fourth thing that should surprise us is he chooses life. Paul says in verses 24 through 26, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Right? He says, death is very much better. And then he goes on to say, yet I will remain. He's going to choose life. Paul uses the word convince, which means to be persuaded. And so it's not as if God gave him a revelation and said, yep, you're, you're actually going to survive this. No, he's looking at the evidence. He looks at the two good things, like the two desirable paths, and he sees death means I get to be with Jesus. Life means I get to help the church in Philippi and other Christians. And he says, I'm going to remain. He chooses that. Very much better is what he says death is, but who's it better for? In this passage, Paul says death is better for him, but life is better for others, for the Philippians. And so he chooses life. When he takes that step back and looks at life from a standpoint of loving others, he sees that remaining means the good of others. And so he believes that because of that, God wants him to remain. In that decision-making, Paul looks at the alternative. He says, I... I'm completely devoted to Jesus, which means that death is good. That death means I'm going to be with Jesus. But in light of the fact that I love God with all my soul, mind, heart, and strength, that means I love others as myself. And that means remaining is actually better for others. It's actually the better alternative. And so in discerning, in deciding, in dividing the will of God, he chooses what is better for their sake. It reminds me of the call for, uh, for husbands in Ephesians 5.25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul's call isn't for all husbands everywhere to go out and die physically. Right? We would no longer have husbands. We do not have guys anymore. The, his point is a more figurative death. Right? I mean, obviously... Physical death is included if that has to happen, but figurative death is what he's talking about, that giving yourself up day after day, daily, dying to your wants, your needs, your desires, so that you can uphold your wife. That's what Paul's doing here. Ironically, he's choosing death by not choosing death. He's dying to his wants, his desires, his wishes of being with Jesus so that he can remain a little longer and care for the people in Philippi and elsewhere. Paul trusted that God will do that which will glorify him most and benefit his children. For Paul then, being able to be around and care for God's flock will be a benefit to God's children, so he's convinced that this is God's will. In making a decision on what to pray for, he concludes he will appeal, pray for God, 
uh, for what God wants most, not what he wants most. It wasn't about being alive that's most desirable before Paul. Instead, it's about being alive because he knew that God's will was for him to love others. This should bring vividly to mind Paul's prayer in Gethsemane. So if you will turn there, Matthew 26, verse 36 and following. In Gethsemane, Jesus is facing a similar dilemma. Our Lord knew that he was about to be betrayed, or he actually was already betrayed, and the outcome of that was about to happen. And Judas was about to bring soldiers to capture him, and he knew it was going to lead to his execution. And our Lord knew that all of that rested in the Father's hands. Jesus struggled something slightly different than Paul, though, because he knew that he was about to face the entire wrath of God instead. It wasn't just being nailed to a cross. It was actually the Father's wrath reserved for sinners. The evangelist Matthew recounts, starting in verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and a second time, a second time and prayed, saying, My father, this, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. In the face of taking upon the sins of the world, Jesus said to the Father, Your will be done. The will of the Father was what Jesus wanted. He didn't pray for what he wanted in the flesh. He acknowledged what he wanted. He asked for the cup to be passed from him. Just like Paul acknowledged what he wanted, he said the death was very much better. But in his choosing, in his asking for what to actually be done, both Paul and Jesus said, your will be done. In imitating Jesus, Paul acknowledged what he wanted. Like I said, he acknowledged that. He said, death is very much favorable, but he asked for what he believed was God's will. All of this should be an example for us. As I spoke about last time, this was an occasional letter written specifically to the church in Philippi for a specific reason, right? There's a reason that he wrote this. And what Paul did here, so Paul, Paul's about to turn. This, this cha- uh, sorry, verse 26 is the last of this section where he talks about himself. He actually turns in verse 27 to talk about the church in Philippi. He says, for example, in 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 28, in no way be alarmed by your opponents. Verse 29, for 
to you it is granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So he's about to turn from talking about himself the past few verses to talking about the situation that's going on in Philippi, the reason he's writing this letter. So he's writing about all this in his context, talking about himself for the Philippians to emulate him. Right? It's kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul is opening up his inner struggles, his inner thoughts, his, his discerning between dilemmas and, and all these different things so that he can present them as an example to the church in Philippi to be able to emulate him in their decision-making, in their ability to root themselves and ground themselves in Jesus as they live out their lives. Earlier, um, when we were speaking of Paul's deliverance, recall that he said that this was in line with his earnest expectation and hope. I've said before, and I'll say it again, Paul's supreme goal in life, the goal that he wants the Philippians and all of us to emulate, is to be devoted solely and completely to Jesus. That is a goal that Paul wants all Christians to seize. And so, as one writer puts it, he was not setting himself, that is Paul, apart from the rest of us as an otherworldly ascetic to be admired from a distance by people whose devotion could not match his. Rather, he, Paul, wanted us all to feel his thrill at the privilege of magnifying Christ. This privilege, and nothing less, is what you and I were made for. We're all called to what Paul is telling us to do in these verses, to rejoice in everything, to see how we can glorify God in all of our decisions, in our future, in everything that happens to us. Paul, as a good pastor, is explaining his circumstances and then walking the congregation through it to see how best to magnify Jesus. He's giving them his thought process as a believer. He's helping them know how to grow what he calls before in his prayer, real knowledge and all discernment so that they can approve the things that are excellent, just like what Paul is doing. This is his example of approving something that's excellent so that they may be sincere and blameless until Christ comes back to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul was convinced that he would remain so that his sheep's faith would progress and their joy would be made complete. And we've reached the point in the sermon here where Paul is going to turn to the Philippians, like I said. And so for us, as we prepare for verses 27 onwards, we need to look at our own lives and see how we can emulate Paul. What are the things going on that troubles us in our present, that are distressing us? What are things that we are anxious about as we look to the future that we're fearful of? Is it the coronavirus affecting or infecting your family, or yourself? Is it your job, not knowing where that's going? Is it who you're going to marry? Is marriage the right choice? Whatever it is that we're anxious about, we need to look to Paul as he turns and speaks to the Philippians in the coming verses. How are you reacting to those anticipations? Are you thinking with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain? Is that your calling card? Is that how you look at your own life and the things that are going on? 
Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. As we leave today, think about how you can make your chief end the exaltation of Jesus. Think about how you can align your earnest hope and expectation to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus. Think about how you can make decisions in light of loving God and loving others rather than loving yourself. As we look at discerning choices that are set before us, we are to choose to pray for what God wants most, not what we want most. I pray that we all grow in that. I pray that we all covet one another's prayer so that we can do that better. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all have wants and desires, and those are good things that you want us to come to you for. And yet here in this text is an example of praying for what you want, Lord, asking for you to do your will, not what we want and what our will is. So I pray that as we look at that tension to be able to appeal to you for what we want, and yet, at the same time, asking for what you want to be done. Help us to do that well. Help us to be able to understand how to discern with all knowledge, Lord. Help us to look to you as our source of happiness and exaltation. Help us to look at all the decisions that we have, all the events that may unfold that will come upon us and help us to see how we can best exalt you, be delivered from the fear of being ashamed of your name, being ashamed of the gospel, but instead exalting you, whether in life or in death. Help us to make you our chief end, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.